Yeah, when you're ready, Dave. Okay. I feel like the chipmunks. Ready, Dave? Okay. <laughs> Hold on a second. I'm going to take a moment. <laughs> that was just a, that was just got a little stage right there. It's for a so second. exciting. Hello, and welcome to the new podcast, Barbarians at the Gate. My name is Jeremiah Jenny. I uh, am the author behind the Chinese history blog, Jottings at the... Let me take that back. And now I know why Kaiser writes this down word for word. All right, starting again. Hello and welcome to Barbarians at the Gate. This is a new podcast focusing on Chinese history and Chinese culture, broadcasting from the pop-up Chinese studios in Beijing on an absolutely sweltering, sweltering Beijing summer day. I think I saw a woman walking her small poodle and it burst spontaneously into flames. My name is Jeremiah Jenny. I'm a rogue sinologist, feral historian, and I work at the Hutong and a cultural exchange center here in Beijing. With me is my co-host, Jeff Schwab. Hey, how's it going? Good to be here. Yeah, so uh, Jeffrey Schwab, and uh, I, I work at, um, at the Hutong in the, as an uh, education programs coordinator. Yeah. Jeff is also an amateur unicyclist. Can we just, uh, just double-check? Oh, not loud enough? To the people? Hello, people. Hello, Renmin. Nice to see you. So this is Jeffrey. I work at the... Uh... Sorry, can you take that over from here? Okay. Yeah. Sure. Just let me, just give me a note. Uh, uh, with me is my co-host, Jeffrey Schwab. Uh, Jeffrey, say hi to the people. Hello, people. Nice to see you, Renmin. Uh, so this is Jeffrey, and I work at the Hutong in the uh, education department. Education programs coordinator. Uh, I like playing Diablo, playing the banjo, playing the guqin, relic hunting, yeah, improvising. So it's quite Jeffrey is quite the Renaissance man. He'll be joining us each week here on Barbarians at the Gate. This is a this podcast. We started this podcast to help talk about things in with Chinese history, Chinese culture, Beijing history, Beijing culture. Um, I'm going to take that back. Barbarians at the Gate is going to be a lighthearted work at uh, Chinese culture, Chinese history. We're not going to take ourselves or our subjects too, too seriously, even when the subject is something um, as important to Chinese culture as the C word, Confucius. And with us today to talk about Confucius and Confucianism in China and a little bit about Confucianism in America, too, is Professor Sam Crane of Williams College. Uh, Sam is the author of the blog Useless Tree, which is a a wonderful blog that looks not just at Chinese philosophy, but the application of Chinese philosophy to modern day problems. Hi, Sam. How are you? Great. Good to be here in the capital. Well, let's, uh, let's start with the basics. So most people in China are familiar with Confucius. Most people outside of China think that he writes fortune cookies for a living. We kind of think of him as an unemployed political consultant and adjunct faculty member. But really, who was Confucius, Sam? He was a Ru, a man who... Uh wandered about and tried to transmit tradition, make sure the kids were being okay in terms of what the old folks used to do. Uh, interestingly, he didn't write anything himself. Uh, it was only his disciples after him who wrote down his sayings, the Analects, which became much later uh, this really powerful book in Chinese politics, culture, history, etc. Uh, he was a frustrated guy, I think. I think he had ideas about how the world should work. The world was not working that way. Uh, he would point that out to some powerful people and every so often lose a job and have to 
wander about with his, uh, with his bros and uh, try to figure out the best way to uh, live and create a stable world around him. So how do we get from an itinerant teacher mm. and, and frequently fired advisor to dukes and nobles, how do we get from this figure to Confucius as a representation of, in many ways, Chinese civilization. The great sage. Large. The great sage, mm. exactly, Jeffrey. Yeah, it's, well, his followers. It's all about his followers. They, um, they held on to his sayings, held on to his beliefs, wrote them down. Um, I think if it wasn't for Mencius, the number two person in power taking the Confucian road, you might say, um, and his great book, Mencius, that kept the flame alive after Confucius died. Mencius, we're talking the 4th century BC or so. Um, so that a school of thought, a growing canon of texts uh, were amassed before the Qin Dynasty, uh, who then killed the Confucians. It was a bad time for Confucians with Qin Shi Huangdi. Uh, but the key moment is the Han Dynasty, as you know, when the powers that be reached over and grabbed Confucianism and said, this is how we want to rationalize power. They keep the Qin legal code. They forge a Confucian ideology on top of it. We get the old Rubiao Fali, Confucianism on the outside and legalism on the inside, which becomes a fantastically powerful formula for statecraft. So, so uh, yeah, when you're talking about the, the Han Dynasty, so I was just reading, is it true that... Um, you know that uh, Liu Bang was the was the first emperor to actually like officially worship or uh, Confucius. Well, I mean, in the Han Dynasty, part of it was turning against you know the the legalist whom the legalist oriented Qin Dynasty that they replaced, and there was some thought that the Confucians could be a nice balance in the bureaucracy, and this kind of also sets up this tension. You don't want to take this too far, but this kind of tension where. You have emperors who tend to be rather legalist in their outlook on things being surrounded by Confucian bureaucrats who are, you know, function as nags in chief and can always slow down or gum up the works. So they don't do what the emperor wants to say. But at the same time, the emperor can get very legalist about it, particularly in the, the way of you know, chopping off their heads or you know, other crucial parts of the anatomy. It was later, a little bit later in the Han Dynasty that it really coalesces around, or they draw on Confucianism to, um, as a state ideology and start to, um, start to expect that people who will be coming into government will have some facility, some background with uh, that way of thinking. The whole examination system doesn't really take shape for hundreds of years after that, but it gets to start in the Han Dynasty and continues going throughout history that way. Thinking of terms of the, you know, words like religion and philosophy, these are, you know, really relatively recent concepts in the Chinese language, both of which are, in fact, Japanese neologisms that were re-imported in the 19th century. You know, when we're trying to, when we get to this day and age and we think of what was Confucianism, how would we even describe back then? Or is there any point in trying to make these kind of distinctions uh, when we're talking about, you know, a period in which the people who were living at the time, frankly, didn't see distinctions at all. Yeah, it's, uh, there's great stuff going on in religious studies now, people who are talking about the invention of religion in East Asia. Uh, and really, it's a 19th century construct in the West as well in terms of understanding how this sort of thing, religion, operates in relation to society, politics, economy. 
Uh, but here, no, it was not a sort of self-conscious realm. You know, ideas and practices and the like would just flow together. Certain syncretism as well. I mean, one would not consider oneself an orthodox Confucian and not involve oneself in Buddhism or Taoism. Everything was sort of mixed together uh, that way. Whether or not Confucianism is a religion is a big question, obviously. Um, people talk about it in terms of not having quite the same kind of institutionalized church as, say, Catholics. We don't have a Confucian pope, I don't think. I don't think the emperor functioned in that, uh, in that uh, way either. So clearly it's a moral theory that tells you how to live a good life, and that's kind of what a religion does. Uh, the role of God, though, is a little problematic there as well. Don't have a God figure front and center in Confucian thinking that way. Although there is a cosmology. Yeah, absolutely. And, and at the same time with, you know, when I think of organized religion, you have, you know, temples devoted, you know, to Confucius. Of course, there are, I mean, there are temples also in China devoted to other other figures, you know, patriotic patriotic figures as well, too. Um, and then, you you know, you have these these Confucius, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not an expert on it, but, you know, there are certain rites or, or, or rituals that go along with, uh, you know, uh, worshiping, worshiping Confucius as but well, you're, But you're worshiping mostly your ancestors and fathers mm. in a kind of patriarchal line. So you don't really have a singular father god figure like you did in the Shang dynasty. And the, the movement well, from the Shang to the Zhou, we kind of lose the potential for a kind of monotheistic kind of God thing. That's what I'm wondering if 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 in the past or like way way back when if, if it was more this this uh, worshiping of ancestors as, as you're saying but now when people if people go to a Confucius temple and they're trying to worship are they are most people worshiping their ancestors or do they think this is where I come to worship Confucius? Right this is a great thing about now is that you know with the suppression of Confucianism under the Maoist period. Now you have this revival and everybody's kind of just making it up as they go along uh, in terms of what practices there should be. So I, I imagine some people do take Confucius as something like a god figure, but there may be other gods you could mix in from other traditions as well there. Uh, I think, you know, part of this also kind of, as a lot of things do, go back to the Jesuits in the 16th century, and the way they, they, you know, very consciously secularized as much as they could all aspects of Confucianism. You know, the idea that, you know, the, the initial project of the Jesuits to try to convert the, the court ran into a real problem because the Confucian rituals were just something, they were, you know, they were the third rail. There was no one was going to give those up. So this idea that they then you know, reinterpreted Confucianism as a, a state ritual or as somehow a veneration of the ancestors that did not have a particular religious meaning, I think also in many ways shaped how we understand Confucianism today. And what I find kind of interesting is that in many ways, this secular Confucius has been, I guess we could almost say re-imported yeah. back into, into China in the sense that many people today in China will say, well, you know, Confucianism isn't a religion, it's a philosophy, and, and they make a distinction there. You know, it, it's kind of interesting to see a Western distinction being made by Chinese people to kind of bring Confucius uh, out of the realm of cosmology, out of the realm of religion, and put him into philosophy, while at the same time what we're seeing, if you go down to places like 
Confucius's birthplace in Shandong, which is Chufu, you're seeing people, you know, reacting to these sites in a very kind of interesting way. And I know, uh, Jeffrey, you've been doing some research down in Chufu lately. Uh, what, what are some of the things that you've seen in terms of how Confucius is being presented in Chufu and how are people reacting to this when they visit there? Well, yeah, so it's interesting that, that uh, you asked this because, yeah, I did recently go down to Shandong and I'll be going there again at the end of this month. Um, and This is for research for a program that we'll be doing with a couple schools, international schools. Um, and, you know, some of the some of the things, you know, when you when you go inside there and you, you know, there are all the big tour groups um, and then, you know, there is there is this tree inside the Confucius temple, the massive Confucius temple there. Um, and where the trunk of the tree looks like it's supposed to look like, look like dragons glow, growing up, uh, you know, over the trunk. And it says there, like, please, you know, protect cultural relics. But everyone, but this tree apparently may have been planted by the sage, you know. Uh, and I just wondered about that, like, in his own temple, he planted his, this tree, I, you know. And so everyone wants to touch this, <laughs> this tree, you know. So I just feel... I feel really bad for this tree. It's like, oh, it's getting handled so many, so many different ways by so many different people that, in there. But the other thing that strikes me about going to Chufu is that, um, you know, well, of course, the memorabilia that you can buy there, you know, the, the books of quotes, the sayings, the, you know, the kind of like picture books, the statues of Confucius, um, then the food that you eat there as well, too. Every restaurant promotes, you know, uh, Kung Fu Thai, you know, like, 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 uh, like Confucius government, like like food, you know, special dishes. Like these are special dishes you can only find in Chufu. And I'm like, did did Confucius, how are we marketing it? Did Confucius eat these dishes? I'm not you know? remembering any recipes in the analects <laughs> there, you know. It's, it's uh, yeah. You know, and, and, and uh, besides that, so many people there claim to be somehow related. I don't know if you encountered this as well, too. Yes, but to everybody whose name is Kong. There right are then. signs out there. Are oh yeah, you know I'm a, you know I'm a this this you know seventy eighth descendant of of Confucius, you know, or 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 somehow on the branch like somewhere off the root there. Yeah, Chufu is interesting because you know obviously you have this kind of. Uh, you know, I think it's great not to hold on to the distinction between religion and philosophy and anything else because people there are just seeking meaning in their lives in whatever way they can, and they go through whatever kind of practices they they feel they need to find that meaning within something called Confucianism. But in Chufu, of course, it's also like this commercial riot. There, everybody's mm. trading off of the Confucius thing as well with the restaurants with. Um, you know, the tourist trade there is massive for yeah. Chinese folks, for people from Hong Kong, Singapore. And that, of course, would drive Confucius insane that profit was really, you know, kind of enlivening that whole place well, in ways it, that... Uh, it, it's interesting, like, the amount of visitors from, you know, yeah, from Japan and Korea that visit Chufu as well, too, because, you know, he's influenced, you know about this much more than... than than we do, but like is you know, kind of reaching reaching out and in uh, kind of uh, embraced you know across large parts of, of not Asia. a lot of not a lot of uh, Americans and Europeans in Chufu though. No, so, that's true. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, which I mean is it, 
I mean, one can understand that. I mean, it is a, a birthplace of a sage dear to East Asian culture. It doesn't necessarily get put on the itineraries of a lot of foreign travelers, Not certainly not in the same way as like Beijing, Shanghai, Terracotta Warriors. You were both referencing the Kong family. I think it might be worth mentioning sort of where we get Confucius from. But right, uh, uh, Sam, as we understand it, you know, the surname is Kong, the given name is oh. Chiu, and he used to refer to himself in the third person a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Right, and Confucius is a Latinized uh, mm. transliteration that I believe comes from the Jesuits as well. Yeah, they uh, there's the well there's the Kong, Kong and then Fu they call them Kong Tzu, which Kung is Zhu. Master Kong, and right. his hip hop Kung name Chiu, right. Kong Fu Tzu, Grandmaster Kong. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we get Confucius, and and the Jesuit philosophy you can't be a or Jesuit theory you can't be a good philosopher if you don't have a Latin name. That's right. So uh, Confucius and uh, Mencius. Why did they never give Shrinza a, a Latin name? Well, Shunza, who is the, uh, is, is the link, if you will, between the Confucians and the legalists, I think has had slightly a, a, a rougher time Because his getting number respect. one student was Han Feizhi, right? And he, he crossed over to the dark side, so he doesn't get a Latinized name. Though. Right, so Shunza's position as the Obi-Wan Kenobi of the Confucians tends to, tends to limit his, uh, his lasting appeal. Mm. You, know, what, you know what this is going to be thinking of? Uh, it's a little bit... A little bit off, but but also when I was thinking of the Japanese and the and the Koreans and other Asian um, communities who come to visit Chufu, I, I also I, I know that that there is a town in Japan apparently where they they believe that um, Jesus died there, and so they actually have a a grave of <laughs> you know. Jesus. I, I, I'm sorry, there's a rest stop on the New Jersey Turnpike where Jesus actually died, so I mean, you can't like <laughs> yeah. take that from me, okay? So I'm just, but I'm just wondering about for um, Confucius temples or, or shrines like uh, abroad as well in, in other in other countries. I, uh, I haven't seen them myself. I've traveled a little bit in Vietnam and, um, and uh, Japan, a little bit in Korea, but uh, have not made that a focus of the trips that I've taken mm. to those places. You know, speaking of sort of legacies, Confucius obviously has had a, and we, we see, we take that back for a moment. In Shufu, we really see kind of Confucius's legacy on display for, for mass consumption. And it's, you know, I think it would be quite interesting to, to people who sort of, it would be it's quite interesting given Confucius's legacy in the 20th century, which has been a slightly, well, quite rocky road. And we think back to the you know, beginnings and the May 4th movement and how Confucianism was blamed for almost every ill besetting traditional society. You know, there was this idea that, you know, everything from foot binding to the oppression of women to the oppression of different classes, it was all being laid at the feet of Confucius. Like he represented the the old archaic. Well, yeah, like almost the same way, except like, you know, in the U.S., a lot of people will say Christianity or the patriarchy is what oppresses people. But that also applies an understanding of Christianity that had been, in some, in some cases, warped. The same way Confucianism was, in fact, used by people in power. And it's saying people in power, not just in the state, but also in families, as a way of kind of justifying a system of power. But at the same time, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily what Confucius would have had in mind. So beginning in the May 4th period, we have this kind of turning against Confucius. And then throughout the 20th century, he kind of goes from being in favor to out of favor. You know, Sam, to walk us through some of that. from the. It's, I think it goes to the depths of the sort of sense of crisis in China in the early 20th century. 
the way that Chinese nationalism emerges then is really unusual compared to other nationalisms because it's culturally iconoclastic. Most nationalism, nationalisms want to claim history and say we are the sort of modern um, expression of this continuous historical community that's been unfolding in its genius over the years, where Chinese nationalists in the early 20th century said no. In order to save China, we have to reject the past and construct a new China that is discontinuous from the past. And you know, looking at it from you know, theories of nationalism, that seems kind of odd. It obviously worked politically because the revolution comes along, the Communist Party uh, really grows out of that sensibility. If we think about how did Marxism get root in China, well, they had to get Confucius out of the way for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, once that political dynamic gets going, uh, there's really no room for Confucius. So, this, you know, starting with, you know, Chen Duxiao, uh, one, of the, one of the great intellectual forces of the May 4th, was also one of the founders of the Chinese Communist Party, later rejected for right opportunism. Uh, but nonetheless, it shows how those things are fused, and as, as that kind of project of intense modernization under a single party state gets started. Confucius is on the outs. I think I mean, it kind of reaches its zenith too when we get to the Cultural Revolution and, and particularly in the... Well, what, what, what doesn't reach its zenith you know, during that time? That, you know, because then you really want to criticize Confucius and his number one disciple at the time who is Lin Biao, the, the <laughs> P. Lin, P. Kung uh, movement of 1974, which... The, the, the way in which, you know, a, a, a someone who was accused of launching a coup against Chairman Mao and, and died, as most people know it, by hitting the Mongolian steppe at 900 miles an hour in a plane, was then... I guess, folded into a, a campaign to criticize Confucius. And there was actually some academic heft to this in, in the sense that, you know, Confucius and Confucian bureaucrats were considered to be the enemy of the people. So criticized Lin, criticized Confucius. But then 40 years later, there's a statue of Confucius in Tiananmen Square. Let's bring him back. Or not really in Tiananmen Square. I guess it was just off of the north edge of the museum there. For about 20 hours, apparently. So what, like, what is it about this guy that, 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 you know, try to try to get rid of him, try to get rid of these, you know, this idea or these ideals, but he's able to kind of make his way through all these different, different kind of upheavals. I think part of it is that there's a, there's a moment around the turn of the 20th century where, you know, even as people are, as Sam kind of really well put it, you know, there's this iconoclast movement against Confucianism. But at the same time, there's a, there's a moment there where Confucianism changed from being what defined civilization to being what defined Chinese civilization. And I think this goes into the, a, a narrative, too, where China's emerging as a nation among other nations, trying to figure out what makes it special as a nation among other nations. And part of that is this adherence to Confucianism. So while there is a great movement against the aspects of it in sort of the old society, there's still something quite powerful, this idea that Confucianism is somehow at the heart of what it means to be Chinese. And, and no matter what the Communist Party would do to get rid of him, 
is something that still would come back. And, and, and the way he's appropriated by the state, you know, first in the New Life Movement by Chiang Kai-shek as a, you know, a model of moral behavior for Chinese and a model for fascist behavior by Chang's cronies. But even now when we see Confucius being reappropriated in terms of the harmonious society, well, yeah, it's interesting because I wonder if if one of the reasons why he's able to kind of remain intact after you know so many uh, so much effort to kind of extinguish him is the fact that like uh, you know the way that the way that life is here or is really it uh, so much is based around a system of guanxi you know and a system of relationships and so much about what he what he didn't write about, but what he talked about and what others wrote about was about the relationships and how you deal with, you know, you know, uh, the father, father to son, husband to wife, ruler right. to... So I think it know. operates on two levels. On the one hand, it, you know, over the centuries, so many Confucian ideas and practices diffused really widely into the society and culture. So, you know, I'm on the number 10 subway line and... You know, there's gender men, right? So we're gonna we're gonna build integrity gates. Um, then do and you see, you know, ren, you know, rentong. You see these concepts constantly circulating, and even though they take on different kinds of meanings in modern contexts, they really have a kind of thread to that past. So I think it is in the culture coming from the bottom up, but I, but also from the top down, right? So the state is you know, looking to see how it can continue to define a particularly Chinese nationalism. Uh, the Maoist period, I think, was an effort to do that, a particularly Chinese form of socialism. That fails horribly. You know, the party has to find another story to tell because nobody wants to hear about the Maoist story anymore. And history is there. History is there for the taking, and Confucius is part of that. You know, it's, just, it's not just Confucius that gets revived in you know in the post-1980 you know, reform period uh, but just a sense of China's historical presence in the world and and all of that uh, and then Confucius happens to be a kind of you know a, you know easy target if you're running an authoritarian state because for hundreds of years authoritarian states use that ideology to rationalize power it is kind of interesting though I mean because Confucianism have application outside of China, if it's come to this point where it defines a particularly Chinese civilization, then is it possible for someone who's outside of China to be Confucian? The short answer is yes, uh, but it obviously it's a debatable and interesting question. And I, I say the short answer is yes because there are philosophers in the United States who, who think about Confucianism, work on Confucianism, interpret Confucianism, apply Confucianism, one good example here is a fellow, Robert Neville, professor at Boston University, wrote a book that you should like, Jeremiah, called Boston Confucianism, where he, he does not read Chinese, Neville, but he would read Confucian texts in translation, and he would live that life, and he considered himself uh, a Confucian. And it, the, the subtitle of his book is great. It has the concept, Portable Tradition. So that, you know, he understands that Confucianism is deeply entwined in Chinese traditions. But he also believes that Confucianism can operate as a world philosophy, and that tradition can move from one place to another. 
I think there's some ways that some people in China want that to be true. They want Confucianism to be a world philosophy and have a, a global kind of influence. But there's, I'm teaching a class now at Renda called Confucianism in America, and I can tell you that there's a certain also hesitation to think that people can be Confucians outside of a Chinese context because it's so Chinese. And I think, I mean, there must be something kind of interesting too if we think of as Confucianism as being possibly a universal value or containing universal values, given that Confucianism is used by the state these days as something of a, a bulwark of Chinese exceptionalism in defense against universal values. Yeah, no, and, and that came up actually in my very first day of my class because uh, the word universalism somehow came up and one student expressed a kind of discomfort along the expected lines. And, but we talked about it, and I think, I think Confucius himself and his disciples historically thought of what they were doing as a universal civilization. Uh, anybody could learn it and become a part of it. Uh, so there's always that aspect to it. And it speaks to, it speaks to ideas that you'll find manifest in other cultures in other sorts of ways. So, yeah, I think, I think there is a universalism in Confucianism. And with that universalism, then, what does that mean for Confucianism in terms of its soft power appeal? And I, and I mean, this has obviously become a subject of some controversy over the last few years because of the association of Confucius the Confucius Institutes, and uh, it, it seems a growing pushback among overseas or, or, or institutions outside of China towards, these, towards the Confucius Institutes as a concept. Yeah, so the soft power thing is difficult. Um, two things to say, maybe, to think about. One is the whole idea of soft power might be over oversold. You know, soft power might not be as powerful as everybody thinks it might be. Uh, you know, if, if you have some sixth graders in a Confucian classroom somewhere in California, I don't think that's really going to become leverage on U.S. policy towards the South China Sea, for example. Um, on the other hand, but clearly uh, politicians everywhere seem to think there's something to gain of this idea of soft power because they talk about it clearly the Chinese leadership has a strategy for it, of which the Confucius Institutes seems to be, seem to be a part. But if we go down that road, I don't think Confucianism is going to be that, play, that source of soft power influence. I don't think it's going to operate that way because it just doesn't have much purchase in American society. This is coming from one who writes on trying to apply Confucianism in America. I think it, it's applicable. I think it can be, yield interesting responses to contemporary American ethical issues, but I don't think it rises to the level of soft power. So I mean, Confucius Institutes, are, they're primarily for teaching language, correct? That's correct. Um, so, you know, the interesting thing is uh, if, if that's what they're about, and that is what they're about, so they're like the Alliance Francaise and, you know, other uh, kinds of institutions that other countries have, but the Confucius Institutes are embedded into U.S. colleges and universities, and that immediately raises a question and a concern amongst stroppy American academics about academic freedom. So they've created a good amount of controversy that way. University of Chicago and Penn State have both rejected Confucius Institutes. 
because of concerns that were there ever to be some kind of program or conversation about topics that were sensitive to the Chinese government, those might be limited, and American academics don't like to be limited that way. Well, I, I think we, we, we can't, I, I think we should, pro before we go, we should, I'm going to take that back. I think we can't leave this discussion, though, without at least mentioning that in uh, this, this past month, uh, the, uh, the historic decision by the Supreme Court on gay marriage, Confucius played a, a small role, or at least was name-checked, I think is the best way he to was put there. this. He was he, there. He came off the bench in the ninth inning yeah. uh, and, uh, like, yeah, for one play. For one, for, for, yeah, for one at bat, we bring up Confucius. Uh, Justice Kennedy wrote, the centrality of marriage to the human condition makes it unsurprising that the institution has existed for millennia and across civilizations. Confucius taught that marriage lies at the foundation of government, um, and to which um, Justice Scalia responded somewhat sarcastically, the Supreme Court of the United States has descended from the disciplined legal reasoning of John Marshall and Joseph Story to the mystical aphorisms of the fortune cookie. <laughs> Leaving aside a whole layer of Orientalism here, what do we make of this? And, and if there's nothing really to be said for the name checking and the name calling, what would Confucius or a Confucian I'm, have to say on the subject of I'm gay sorry, marriage? I, I, just, I just can't believe a Supreme Court justice is talking about fortune cookies. <laughs> well, Scalia has been pretty frustrated this term. He's come off with some really crazy things to say. And, you know, unfortunately, he has to descend to that in this case. Uh, so, yes, the Kennedy reference was embedded in a series of other references trying to demonstrate that marriage is fun a fundamental right. Um, and then, of course, the next move was that that fundamental right can't be restricted from people on grounds of sexual orientation. So gay marriage wins. Uh, in a larger sense, uh, I've actually written about this, I think that there's a way that Confucianism, if we were to extrapolate from some principles in the ancient texts, obviously the ancient texts themselves don't talk about same-sex marriage, but if we extrapolate some ideas, we could come to the conclusion that Confucianism could accept same-sex marriage because it would be more about the marriage and less about the sex. Marriage as a social institution where two people come together and pronounce a commitment to an ongoing relationship is a very Confucian idea, that you're investing yourself in cultivating humanity uh, with someone else in a consistently conscientious way. Um, and I think that would overcome whatever reservations Confucians might have about homosexuality. I don't think they would be all that great, actually, if, uh, yeah, so I think, I, think, uh, I think there are grounds to say that a Confucianism, a modern Confucianism, could accept same-sex marriage. Well, we really want to thank uh, Sam Crane for coming in today. Let me take that back for a second. Well, from Shandong in the 5th century, oh, should I take that back because I got the date wrong again, 551 to 479, 6th century. From Shandong in the 6th century uh, down to the present day debates on gay marriage, Confucius seems to appear in the strangest of places. I really want to thank our guest today, Sam Crane. Uh, Sam will actually be talking, Sam will be talking, take that back. 
Sam will be talking about Confucius uh, this Saturday at the Hutong. He'll be the... I'm sorry. Shoot, I screwed that up. Soft power. Soft power. Sam will be joining us at the Hutong on Saturday. The discussion will be uh, China's... Oh, I don't know. I just screwed that up again. It's China's, China's soft power disconnect in America. America. Sam will be... Jo- Sam will be joining us this Saturday at the Hutong. His topic will be China's soft power disconnect in America. It's the inaugural talk in our Sino-American talk series. Um, Also on Sunday, uh, if I can do a little bit of shameless plugging, um, I'll be leading a walk at the Confucius Temple as well on Sunday afternoon. So if anyone's interested in that, they can check that out. Um, And I want, um, yeah, I'll probably take that back. Uh, thank you, Jeffrey. Sure. I'll be at the Confucius Temple tomorrow, actually. Really? Yeah, with some students uh, from a uh, university. Yeah. When you take students to the Confucius Temple, what do you usually do? Uh, I'll be, uh, I have some some things for them. I'll let them kind of go around and explore on their own, but like with uh, some some kind of, uh, uh, you know, directed uh, questions as well, too, for them to answer based on the information they find there and try to actually talk to some people if they can as to why they are coming to the Confucius Temple sort of to bring it back to the to the modern modern day because you know you go you go to these these big temples and you see big groups of people well let's let's use that and uh, they'll be more than happy to speak some some English with them as well too and they might not know why they're at they're at the Confucius Temple but I think that that's also telling in itself so okay well thank you both very much uh until next time this is barbarians at the gate have a good evening okay okay thanks dave thanks guys that was good we forgot to say our favorite confucius quote